You're listening to Mass Device Radio. In this interview from 2013's Big 100 East, Johnson & Johnson's Global Medical Solutions Group Worldwide Chairman Karen Lasitra talks about her role within Johnson & Johnson and how she thinks the economics of healthcare and the medical device industry need to change in order to accommodate the future. Thank you for downloading this Mass Device Radio podcast. So Karen, you have an amazing job at Johnson & Johnson. You have sort of the ability to look over several different industries or within our medical device segment. Tell me about big picture. Where are we today in the med tech industry? You know, I think quite honestly, we're at a, we're at a, uh, a turning point, a crossroads. I don't know how you want to phrase it, but you know, we all grew up in this industry where it's been you know, that physician, sales rep, relationship, product development, all, you know, incremental innovation and in an in a industry where you really didn't have to worry too much about regulation or about reimbursement. And uh, today, it's a very different picture. You know, you've got, you know, us, you know, you've got markets that are growing a lot slower. You've got um, regulatory, uh, you know, hurdles that you have to achieve that are very different than they were before, 510K, PMA. Um, you know, the cost to develop devices is much greater than it's been in the past, and obviously you've got healthcare reform. So, you know, I think that we don't really know yet exactly how all of this is going to shape up. Will ACOs, you know, survive? You know, there was something in the paper today about whether, you know, a lot of them saying maybe I'm going to get out of it. Not all right. of them were as successful. So, um, but, you know, so I think there's going to be a lot of different things, and I think innovation going forward is not going to be the innovation in the past. I mean, it is absolutely clear that innovation has to be able to demonstrate some type of clinical and or economic benefit. Right. We see that every single day. I hear that a lot about economic value, economic benefit. Help me dig into this a little bit because I think, you know, you, you tend to think of economic value in terms of a sales process, but is there something deeper there in terms of how you develop products and things like that? Well, I think for developing products, I mean, you could look at it from a couple of different perspectives. You know, internally, you know, you've got to be able to make sure that you are looking at what the market cost and value of your product might be and how your customer is going to define that value. And I would say the first thing we have to do is not just look at the clinician as the customer. You've got to look at all of the stakeholders who are influencing your product today because you know, depending upon what kind of product you have, it could be a CEO, it could be, you know, a, a nurse, a purchasing agent, a payer, um, and, and the clinician will always still be important in that sale, but you've got to look at who the drivers and barriers are there and really decide, you know, how am I going to create economic value? And today, if you look at, you know, and I'm speaking very U.S.-centric right now, um, you know, if you look at hospital systems, you know, they're their whole mantra is they want to try and keep people out of the hospital. So technologies that shift site of care, technologies that, you know, you can demonstrate where, you know, the potential for that technology, for, for that patient to get out of the hospital faster with less, um, you know, and, and recover faster, things like that are going to be critically important. And, you know, quite honestly, those were always, those, those aren't new things that, you know, uh, patients and customers and clinicians want, but today you've got to prove it a lot more before you're going to be able to get the uptake of your product as quickly as you've had in the past. If your hospital clients aren't getting paid in the same amount of time that they used to, you know, 
if, if it's not 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, those keep getting pushed out. How much do you think that changes the nature of the medical device industry or the sales process in that industry? When the hospital's not getting paid by Insurance companies, insurance reimbursement, companies. we have different hurdles for reimbursement. Well, I mean, I think that the hospitals today clearly are spending a lot more time, you know, and you probably all see it, right? You have to have value dossiers when you bring your product in. They're spending a lot more time. You know, they're not, they're looking at standardization in the hospital. It's not going to be just one more product on the shelf. Um, so they are creating the kinds of constraints and barriers to make sure that, you know, they're bringing product in that will truly get utilized in the hospital and then they'll mm -hmm. be able to, you know, they'll get paid for it. And it has to be within their DRG system. I think you told me when we spoke on the phone briefly that this is an era of partnerships. And I, I would love for you to dig into that a little bit, um, sort of on a macro sense and how does that really, how does that play out in a company like Johnson & Johnson? How, how do you serve as a catalyst for that era? You know, I think it's an interesting, um, it, it, I think it's evolving in the marketplace today. When, when I look at some of the technologies or businesses that I have responsibility for, um, you know, it's clear that, you know, and I'll use diabetes as an example. It's, you know, 450 million people will have diabetes by the time, by 2020, right? It's the single biggest global healthcare issue in the world. Um, it's not going to be solved by just an insulin pump or a meter and a strip, right? It's going to be solved by some kind of an integrated solution that's gonna involve a payer and other providers and a whole population health management system, right? And, and maybe even non-traditional customers uh, or players in here that um, can really help drive patient engagement in dealing with their disease. And I, I think that's a, you know, that's a, a probably a, a great example of where we are gonna to have to be willing as medical device manufacturers and suppliers to look at other um, uh, suppliers and providers out there that we can partner with to drive a better solution in the marketplace. So that's, that's a big macro one. But I mean, we see, you know, quite honestly, in our farm sector, they partner all the time with um, many different companies, both in terms of drug development as well as uh, you know, sales um, and commercial opportunities. And I, I think it's going to be an opportunity, um, you know, in medical devices as well going forward. I don't know exactly how it'll take shape, but I, I think we're going to have to think differently about um, how we do business. So you say, think we're, we're sort of in the nascent period of this, we're in the early stages Absolutely. Here. Absolutely. It's about business model innovation, right? I mean, I think that's where it's going to really play really big is, is we're all in the, you know, I think the medical device industry is one that needs a new business model going forward. And that's going to mean potentially that we're going to have to look at different partnerships to do that. I, I mean, sometimes I get nervous when I hear that because I mean, so do I, because <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out. It reminds me a little so. too much of our industry, right? The newspaper industry. Uh, exactly. Is there parallels there, you think? Well, I think that, you know, I, I don't know that we see the disruption, um, you know, as uh, as you know, blatant as as we do, kind of in in that industry. But I don't think we can underestimate that there are people that see healthcare as, you know, the opportunity that it is. I mean, let's face it, we are an aging population globally. You know, for as many uh, frustrations as we might have in the industry and the, the things that we're facing with right now, this is still, in my opinion, one of the best industries in the world to be in because there's just so much unmet need out there. Um, but I think that, you know, like anything, there's technology is evolving. And I think that we're going to see different kinds of players try to come mm -hmm. into this 
marketplace that will potentially disrupt that traditional business model if we're not open to that possibility. I mean, we talked about M&A with Kathy. It would be almost irresponsible not to talk about <laughs> Johnson & Johnson's sort of parry there. I mean, the, the, the $21 billion merger with Synthes uh, last year, how, how difficult is it to integrate a company like that after such a, such a massive commitment? Oh, I, I think integrations, and I mean, a lot of what you said, you know, I, I can absolutely relate to, and, and even though it, Synthes isn't part of my basket, I work really closely with uh, the leader of that whole group, and, you know, you can't underestimate a merger of that size, and, you know, I totally agree with Kathy in terms of it's about strategic, um, you know, intent of the two businesses, and it, it you have to have cultures and value systems that mesh with each other, otherwise it's a disaster. And, and I would say first, and you know, the other thing that's really important is it's all about leadership and communication. You've got to constantly be engaging with um, your leadership teams, people at every level in the organization. Transparency is critical. I think, you know, where, where you tell people what you know and you tell people what you, you don't know and, and you go from there and uh, you've got to have, you know, we, what we do is we have, you know, what we call our program management offices. We put dedicated people who do nothing but this every single day um, to get through an acquisition because, as Kathy said, you've got to run the businesses mm -hmm. while you're doing it. I mean, when I hear investor presentations, I almost never hear, we're looking for the mega deal. And I'm wondering if, if I would classify this as a mega deal. I mean, it's, it's the largest in J&J's history. Right. <laughs> Why do you think the company? Uh, no, it wasn't about I, looking for a mega deal. I mean, this was clearly about you know we had if this is where you're going. I mean, Depew, you know, big global, um, you know, leader in many of um, of its um, segments. Most one of the most diversified orthopedic portfolios, and you know it was really about strategy. And we saw that you know orthopedics was going to continue to be a very large market we wanted to continue to maintain a leadership position and you know we've um, certainly had watched Cynthia's for years they were the global leader in trauma that was an area that quite honestly we weren't um, the leader in and um, so for us it was just a perfect fit to um, you know to make uh, us a real global leader in the worldwide orthopedics market and so it was very much a strategic acquisition and do you feel like that this is something the company would do again, you think? Oh, if it makes strategic sense and creates value for our shareholders, absolutely. Okay. You don't want to Maybe tell not us next one. year, but one day, you know. <laughs> I want to ask both of you a couple of questions here while we have you here on the panel. First of all, Karen, you had a great first job. I was, I was wondering what, what both of your sort of first forays into your professional lives were. So, um, I, my very first job out of college was with Oscar Mayer. So I sold hot dogs for a living. Um, I tried to sell hot dogs. Truth be told, I couldn't sell an Oscar Mayer hot dog if my life depended on it. But I was the number one bacon salesperson on the East Coast. So I was, that was my claim to fame, but uh, always wanted to be in the medical industry. Uh, wholesale so bacon? Or... No, I did, well, yeah, wholesale. I sold, I, I used to go to diners along Route 9 in New Jersey and yeah fry up bacon for them and show them how they could get more bacon for their, I can't believe you're asking me this. You know, 
No, seriously, last week was Oscar was National Hot Dog Month or something. Right, right, right. And I used to tell my nieces and nephews that I used to carry an inflatable hot dog in the back seat of my car. So you want to talk about, you know, that first foray into sales and the rejection that I used to get, you know, it was, do you, do you was did you lean on those skills a lot in your medical device career? Did I do what? Lean on those skills a lot? <laughs> I didn't have to carry a hot dog, thank God. You know? <laughs> I didn't have to carry anything inflatable in medical device sales. That was that was a good part of it, but I did. I did. You know, bacon is very popular with the with the hipsters these days. So you might I consider a comeback. Kathy, where did where'd you start? Nothing start is dramatic. It's really interesting. I didn't know that about you. I did. But the I went I went from graduate school right into software engineering and started doing programming for instruments at Eastman Kodak Company. So my first very first job was pulling out the electronics and putting in digital um, Nova mini computer, if you all remember this from Data General, inside of a color printer at Kodak. That was it. <laughs> Not at all as fun. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Karen, I had to. Uh, <laughs> so I want to talk to both of you about being a woman in the corner office. Cheryl, San Cheryl Sandberg, CEO of Facebook, got a lot of attention for her book, Lean In, and essentially talking about how women need to, you know, lean in. I didn't read the book. <laughs> I'm sorry. So we could say whatever yeah, we want. Right. <laughs> <laughs> essentially that women need to, uh, you know, the, the success that women uh, achieve needs to be, I think, driven from their desire to go for it more. And that one fact that she leaned on was that a man will apply for a job that he has 60% of the qualities uh, that he matches 60% of the qualities for and a woman even if she matches 100% of the qualifications uh, typically doesn't apply for that job. Uh, now, even if you haven't read the book, I mean, what do you, what do you think of this concept here in terms of uh, sort of being a woman leader and, and how it has either helped or hindered your career? Can go That's first. I know. How much time? <laughs> oh, that was a Sam Donaldson question. I'm sorry, yeah. but we... you know, look. I think um, I, I think first of all, you know, one of the comments I would make just walking into this this um, event tonight, the first thing I said to my head of communications here is like, God, it's so great to see so many women in the audience today. So I have to say, it was my first impression when I when I came in, um, and you know, certainly in the medical device industry. Um, there aren't as many women, or at least there weren't when I started, you know, 30 years ago, at least. And so I had the advantage of visibility, because when there's not that many of you, you know, people notice, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, and that's good and bad. You've got to, you still have to be able to prove who you are. But I, I think that, you know, I, I think some of her principles were, are, are very true. You do have to, um, you know, say what you want. And I see the generations today, quite honestly, they're not shy about asking for what they want. But I think women will always have to learn um, to be more self-confident and to uh, and that they have you know to make choices and just like everyone else does and that there are choices to make um, and I think you know she gives some great advice in her book for that and I, I think we practice that you know every day it's about supporting people and and making sure that um, you give them the space to be as successful as they can be and I think that's our job as leaders to do that for men and women quite honestly in the organization and I really see you know, I, I feel very proud. We, you know, we do great work at J and J from a diversity perspective. So I feel really proud to work in a company that supports that and um, encourages it. Because you're both from J and J, right? So, um, Kathy, how about yourself? 
So, um, you know, I get asked this question an awful lot, you know, and sometimes I kind of sidestep, you know, the whole question here. But, you know, almost 40 years working for me, um, and, you know, great companies, Kodak, J&J, &J, ABI, KCI, I have to say that, you know, I have felt a lot of support from men and women along the way to get to where I've gotten to. Like Karen, I'd like to believe that where I got to was a function of my working very hard. You know, when I was a very young software person, one of the very first little plaques I bought, and I still have my desk today, says women must work twice as hard as men to be thought of as half as good. Luckily, this is not difficult. So, I mean, it's somewhat, <laughs> it's somewhat, uh, I mean, it's somewhat um, tongue in cheek, and I probably believe it less now than I did when I was, you know, 24 years old. You know, but I think it's true of any situation where there's a, a minority representation, quite honestly. You do have to do things. You do have to take the tough assignments. You do have to stick your neck out. You can't be afraid. And you have to be courageous. And that's true of all leaders. You know, and we talk to the, the women and the minorities about that. It's a choice. It's a choice you make. You know, it's a choice that all of you make from a leadership perspective, right? Do you sit back? You know, or do you speak your mind and do you ask for the tough assignments? I really think it's not any different between men, women, or any other minority in there. But regard. do you ever feel like there was a different standard? But do you feel like there was a different standard? I, in my own personal experience, I don't feel like there was a different standard. I agree. Okay. How about, give some advice. I have a 14-month-old daughter. I'd like her to be as successful as you. <laughs> <laughs> like Tell to. her father to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> that was good. Just kidding. Well done. <laughs> no, I'm just now he's speechless. No, that was great. Now you've Eddie, got it. What, what advice do you have for the, the, the female leaders of tomorrow, the women leaders of tomorrow, or the leaders of tomorrow? Uh, I'm sorry, what, what, I, what advice do you have for the women leaders of tomorrow? How do they achieve some of the success that you have? I, you know, I think how they said it well, I think, you know, go for it. I mean, just know, be clear about what you want to do and don't be afraid to go for it. Um, and don't underestimate your own abilities um, because you can do whatever you put your mind to. And I tell that to everyone. And, and the other thing I tell everyone is be willing to, um, you know, take risks and get out of your comfort zone and maybe, you know, try different areas. If you grew up in sales and marketing, try something different. Um, you know, work around the organizations or, or companies that you work for and get that experience. I think leaders of the future are absolutely going to have to be much more, much better at general management and much more agile and much more culturally agile than, you know, than they were when we were growing up 30 years ago. So take advantage of every opportunity that you have to get a new experience. Kathy, do you want to well, I would say I would only add on to that. You know, I think you know all of us need a support network. You know, whether it's friends, family, whatever. I mean, I think it's important if you want to be a successful leader, whether it's men or women, that you build that kind of support network. You know, to make you be able to do stuff at home and do stuff at work, and to create the kind of balance that you need. Because you know, you need to be able to go hire this, that, and the other thing done, and you need to be able to be confident that you can you know, go, go do that. You have to create as much of a chance for yourself to succeed as you possibly can. So I just tell everyone, don't get burdened down by stuff that, you know, you can go out and hire somebody to do it for you. Well, great. This is really terrific. Can I get around? Do you want to add one more? 
I, can I just make one clarifying um, statement to what you, you said early on when you did the introduction? I'd be remiss if I didn't say that um, you, know, you mentioned Avimed and the Avimed Technology Conference. Absolutely. And um, I really hope that we get to see everybody in September um, in Washington, D.C., because it's a great, it really is a great conference. And particularly for those of you who are small companies and startups, this is really the chance to get to connect with many CEOs like Kathy and others and, and from the medical device industry and get your technology heard and hear what's going on in the industry that can help influence um, your business. But we need you there because you did such a phenomenal job in Boston uh, <laughs> last year that you need to come and show us how to do it right in Washington. So I hope I get to see you there. And thank yeah, you for helper, having us. The good advocate. Help her beat you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks thank for you. having us. Thanks for having us.